If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, as we continue our walk through the book of Genesis and look more specifically at the life of Abraham and the life of uh, what it means to uh, have a life of faith. Uh, This is the father of all who believe. As you're finding your place in God's Word there, it's an exciting day in the life of Lenexa Baptist Church because for the first time this morning, we have a core group of believers and uh, volunteers and, and leaders that are meeting for the first time at Reach Church in DeSoto. So in downtown DeSoto, amen. It's incredibly exciting. We've worked really hard to get everything ready, and, and so Pastor Ryan is going to be preaching to that group. In fact, he'll probably be preaching to them here in just a few minutes. We're not quite ready to open to the public, but uh, they're going to be meeting as a core group over the next several weeks, and we'll be opening in the month of August. And, and what I want us to do this morning, I told Pastor Ryan that we would be praying for them. And, and so as we begin to launch out in that community and seek to do something great, to reach that community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to pray for them. We believe that, that prayer is the fuel that fires the evangelistic effort of our church. And so we just want to pray for them. So uh, would you join me this morning as we pray for, for Reach Church DeSoto? Lord, we, uh, we come before you this morning, and we're humbled in your presence. You're the God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth. As the psalmist said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that you'd care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor and put all things in subjection to his feet. God, we're, we're amazed that you would even consider us. But we know that you've done more than just consider us. You've done more than just think about us. You sent your son Jesus to die for us, to change us, to rebirth us, to redeem us, and then to invite us into a mission and a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. Lord, we're so grateful that we have the opportunity to participate with you as we seek to to share the gospel and to be your witnesses right here in this community and around the world. God, even as we just heard, we pray for India and we pray for Pastor Isaac and many there who are laboring in a difficult situation. But this morning, Lord, we want to pray very specifically for Reach Church DeSoto as we launch that work. Lord, we believe you've guided us to that place. We, we believe that you've gone before us. And, and God, you've raised up a group of volunteers, a core group, and you've brought to us Pastor Ryan, and we just want to pray your blessing upon them as they meet for the very first time at that location. God, we pray that you would bind their hearts together in one holy passion, and that's to make your name great in that community. God, we believe that you're a God who's still able to save, as we just sang. God, we believe that you delight in taking a small group of ordinary individuals and doing more through them than they ever thought possible. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower them today as they begin this new work to demonstrate your power and to proclaim your gospel right there in that community. Lord, we look forward with with great anticipation to what you're going to do. We pray that you would guide us. Lord, it is your church, not ours. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. Keep us in the center of your will and guide us as we seek to participate with you. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I want to encourage you just to be praying for Reach Church and Pastor Ryan as they uh, begin that work there. And in the coming days as we open up, uh, uh, I want to encourage you, if you get a chance, to go over there and worship with them. The, the building there has undergone a radical transformation. I was able to go over there this week and see the sanctuary. It's a beautiful facility that God has given to us. And, and uh, I know at some point you're going to want to go down there and check it out and and encourage Ryan. So we'll keep you updated as best we can. Well, let's look together. Genesis 18. Again, we're looking at Abraham, the life of faith. So much of this is applicable to our lives because what we see here is what God does in Abraham's life, what he does in Sarah's life is what God wants to do in our life. And we're seeing that God is changing Abraham. Remember, now that we're in Genesis 18, 24 years have passed. Uh, that's a lot of time. We read these, stu- these, these passages and you think, well, we've gone from chapter 12 to 18. It's only six chapters, but it's really 24 years. And over a period of 24 years, God has been changing Abraham. In fact, as I've been studying this, we're seeing some dramatic changes in Abraham's life. I've wondered if Abraham recognized the changes that God had been making in him. But what's true of Abraham is true of us as we walk with God, as we journey with God by means of faith. God changes us. I mean, my life verse is Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That the minute you come to faith in Christ, God begins to work in your heart. And the goal of his work is to conform you into the image of Christ, to change you so that his power and his presence is demonstrated in and through you for his glory. Well, that's what God is doing in Abraham's life. He's being changed in dramatic ways. And I think something that that would be good for us to do on a regular basis is to sit down and say, how has God changed me this past year? And boy, I I don't know about you, but even in the midst of all this COVID stuff, God has been working in my heart to change me, some radical changes. God has gotten into areas of my life that I wish he wouldn't get into, I wish he wouldn't mess with. But I'm grateful for God, how how he uses these things. And even better question, because sometimes we have difficulty seeing the changes that God is making uh, ourselves. Uh, I think a better better exercise is to find somebody who loves you and knows you. Uh, Make sure they love you, because you might not like what they hear. but, But ask them... How has God changed me? And, and, and really to get even more specific, to ask your spouse or a close friend, do you see more of Christ in me today than you did a year ago? Because that's the goal. And boys, you study Abraham, the further along we go, the more we see God in this man. And the more we see his power demonstrated. And that's our prayer as we come to this text. God, change us. So, so let's pray together, then, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. God, never let us get over the, the, the wonder and the beauty of the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And you desire to speak to us this morning. And God, nobody knows better than me this morning. We desperately need you to speak. Because I've got nothing, Lord, nothing of eternal value. Nobody here needs to hear from me. But God, all of us today, we desperately need to hear from you. We need you to make your word alive to us. We need you to change us. God, I pray that today we would meet with you. We'd hear your voice. God, I don't know how to apply this to every person's life. But, but you do. You know them. And so, God, I pray you take your word today. And where, where they need encouragement, God, I pray you'd encourage them. Where maybe somebody needs correction, I pray that you'd correct them. And God, if somebody's here this morning and doesn't know you, I pray that you'd rebirth them by means of faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So look with me, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre uh, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. So he's in the middle of the day, heat of the day, get a lot of work done in the morning, a lot like what we do today if we're having to work outside. We try to get a lot of work done in the morning because it gets to the middle of the day, it gets so hot you don't want to be outside. So Abraham's probably done a lot of work that morning. He's taken a little bit of a siesta, a little rest there. And all of a sudden it appears as if just kind of out of the blue, these men just, just, just appear opposite of him. And the question is, who are these men? Um, We see that two of them are referred to as angels. The real question is, what is the identity or who is this third individual that we see referenced here? Well, you'll note that, that when Abraham addresses this individual, he addresses him as Lord. Although, I don't know what your translation has, but my translation in verse 3 has Lord, lowercase, capital L, but lowercase O-R-D. Meaning that most commentaries, most translators assume that at this point, Abraham doesn't know his identity. And that word Lord is just a sign of respect. It would be like you and I saying, sir. So he's being respectful, but he doesn't know his identity. But when we get further into the passage, when we get further into the text, in fact, my translation in verse 13, when it talks about Lord... Or when it says verse Lord, uh, Lord in verse 14, it uses all caps. And so there's a transition that's taking place. 13, Lord, capital uh, O-R-D. And then 14, uh, Lord, capital O-R-D. What's, what the commentators are stating here, what the translators are stating, stating here is that now we know that the identity of this individual is that this is God himself. This is uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So God himself is coming to have a meal. And in fact, I think when you get later in the story, Abraham, the light dawns on him and he realizes I got God here because God's going to use the covenantal name of Sarah. Probably at this point, the only people that know that Sarai's name has been changed to Sarah is God, Abraham, and Sarah. And I think the, the light begins to dawn. And in fact, he, he reiterates the promise to Abraham and this promise that he made to him in chapter 17. And I think at that point, Abraham begins to recognize this voice. This is the voice of God. But he doesn't know that initially. But we have God here having a meal with Abraham. God shows up to have a meal with Abraham. And some people view this as a covenantal meal. Uh, Oftentimes when you establish that covenant that we saw in chapter 15, when you'd cut an animal in two and pass through the pieces, you'd kind of seal that covenant by taking a meal together with that individual. And so a lot of people see this as a covenantal meal that's the sealing of the covenant that he established in chapter 15. And in a similar way, we've entered into a covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have, we too have a meal, don't we, that signifies and seals the new covenantal relationship. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. And by the way, we're planning to have communion on site uh, the weekend of August 1st and the 2nd and everything goes well. Uh, But it's a significant meal to us, doesn't it? It reminds us of the covenantal relationship, the new covenant we've entered into. So a lot of people, and I think that's probably the case, but but we also know that as we're going to see God comes to strengthen Sarah's faith and But the real reason of why God has come is what? We're going to see it in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 19. God has come to bring judgment on on Sodom and Gomorrah. But God shows up here, and look how Abraham responds at the end of verse 2. 
It says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I'll bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you've visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abram, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and, and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. And he didn't just like a man to invite three men over and then tell her to fix the meal. Here we go. In verse 7, Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. So Abraham sees these men, these strangers. He doesn't know their identity. But we see in here an eagerness in Abraham. In fact, those words, you'll see the words repeated that he ran or or that he hurried. And then he's pleading with them twice. He says, please, please let me serve you. There's There's just this natural inclination. There's this eagerness on the part of Abraham to demonstrate extravagant hospitality to to strangers. And let's be honest, this is not the Abraham that we've seen as we've studied his life. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham himself was very self-centered. He wasn't looking for how he could be compassionate to others. He was looking out for number one. In fact, he wasn't even that concerned about his wife. He was ready to throw her under the bus to save his own hide. And then all of a sudden here, he becomes this person who's ready and eager to demonstrate hospitality to strangers. It's a powerful picture of how God and his people, as God changes us, as we enter into a a covenantal relationship with him by means of faith, God changes us from very self-centered people to others-centered people. I mean, we all, like Abraham, we start out being very selfish people, don't we? We come out of the womb being very self-centered. You don't believe me? Volunteer in the nursery. You'll get a crash course on the self-centeredness of man. We come out of the womb, and it's all me, 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 I, I, I. But the power of what God does through faith in Christ and the indwelling of his spirit is he takes the love that we naturally have for ourselves, and he enables us by his spirit to redirect that love outwardly towards God and other people. He transforms us so that now the natural inclination of our lives is to love other people. So Abraham, he's ready, he's eager. He just had this natural inclination. He's not doing this grudgingly. Nobody's forcing Abraham to do this. He wants to do it. And then not only is he eager, is it natural, but... The second thing you see is it's humble. I mean, this is supernatural humility because what we know about Abraham is there's probably nobody in in all of Mesopotamia that was more wealthy or more powerful than Abraham. Here's the most wealthy, powerful person in all of Mesopotamia, and he's ready to wash feet and cook meals. But that's what the power of God does. It takes selfish sinners and turns us into humble servants, doesn't it? That there's no act of service too low for God's people who have been been shown his grace and his mercy. 
that we have the heart of what Paul talked about in Philippians where he said to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility of mind to regard other people as more significant than yourselves. Abraham doesn't, they're just strangers. He doesn't know who they are. And he's a very powerful person. And yet in an opportunity to demonstrate hospitality, he says, I'll be a servant and I'll do so eagerly because I want to be a blessing. And in fact, that, that, that was, that's what God promised Abraham he would be in chapter 12. You're going to be a blessing. And now it just appears that the inclination of his heart is to bless other people. Not only was it natural and humble, but it was sacrificial. I mean, he, uh, he, he initially, it's a very humble offer. I'm just going to get you a piece of bread. But then he goes behind the scenes and what is he doing? He's got Sarah, three measures of flour, and the commentaries tell us, I don't know how much bread, but it's a whole lot of bread. And then, not not just a lot of bread, he goes and gets the choice calf. He only got three guys to feed. I mean, going down to Steve's meat market and getting a side of beef. That's a lot of meat for three guys. Do you see what he's doing, though? He's not just putting together a peanut butter jelly sandwich lunch for these guys. He's throwing them a feast. This is extravagant. This is over the top. And the question is, why would he do this? Why, why would, go, would Abraham go to such great lengths? And I think if we're not careful, we'd be tempted to say, well, listen, I'd do the same thing. If, it were, if I knew the Lord was coming over for dinner, I'd get a side of beef too. If I knew Jesus was coming. But folks, that's the whole point. Abraham didn't know this was the Lord. In other words, this wasn't just some isolated incident that Abraham occasionally did for really important people. The picture that we have here is that this was a principle that governed Abraham's life. That he was ready to serve the Lord on this day because in every day, in every activity of Abraham's life, he was serving as unto the Lord for his glory. That Abraham, in every opportunity he had to serve, he treated that person as if they were the Lord. And so he was ready when the Lord really did show up. You know what Hebrews 13.2 tells us? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For some, by doing so, have entertained angels without knowing it. That we know in the New Testament that we, just like Abraham, in every activity of our life, in every opportunity to demonstrate hospitality, we ought to serve that individual. We ought to have a heart as though we're doing it unto the Lord himself and for his glory. That what should mark the people of God is a heart of humble, extravagant hospitality. You think the Disney experience is good. As God's people, we ought to have a reputation that every individual, no matter where they come from or what they look like, when they enter into this place, they're treated as though they were the Lord himself. And don't you think Abraham gained an incredible reputation in Mesopotamia? If you ever travel through the Judean Ark, you got to go by Abraham and Sarah's place because they'll throw you a feast. But that should mark God's people. 
that they should be known. God is setting an example for us as God's people today that we ought to be known for extravagant hospitality. And it's no incidental issue either. This is not one of those issues where you say, well, if you get a chance every now and then, demonstrate a little hospitality. If you read Matthew 25 correctly, how well you treat other people and strangers in your life is an indicator as to whether or not you truly know the Lord. You remember in Matthew 25, the context is judgment. He looks at a group of people and says, you get in. And they say, why do we get in? He says, because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was a stranger, you invited me in. You remember what they say? We don't even remember doing that. In other words, this was just natural to their lives. It's just what they did. They say, when did we do this? And Jesus said, whenever you did it unto the least of these, you were doing it unto me. Can I just ask you this morning? Now, listen, this doesn't mean that you're throwing a party at your house every Friday night. That's not what this means. But what it does mean is that you are looking for opportunities in your life to demonstrate extravagant hospitality. Does that mark your life? Do you have a reputation as God's people of being extravagant in how you love strangers? And I think about it often for our church. Do we have that reputation? That extravagant hospitality marks us as a church. That's who we're to be. That's who God changes, has changed Abraham into being. The second part of this passage, God begins to really, I think, work in Sarah's life. And even before we read it, it it's, it's a powerful, because we see here that part of God's reason in coming, if not the main reason, at least in having this meal, is to encourage Sarah and her faith. Because I think that at this point, Abraham, it appears that he is at least somewhat convinced that what God has promised, he's able to perform now, it took some convincing in Abraham's life, didn't it? I mean, we've, gone, we've come a long way. This guy didn't have a whole lot of faith, but God has grown his faith and brought him to a place. But what we learn in this passage is that Sarah's not there yet. Well, Abraham's, I, I think he's become convinced Sarah's not quite there yet. And it's a good reminder how God often works in our marriage relationships, that sometimes he'll confirm a decision or a direction in one spouse's heart. You ever had this happen where God convinces of you of something and you are dead set, that's what God's called me to do, but your spouse isn't there yet. And I think we would do well on a lot of those occasions to not nag or try to argue our spouse over to where God has brought us, but ask God to confirm in their heart what he's already confirmed in ours. Let God work. Because God desires marriages that are equally yoked. And we, when we think of equally yoked, we think of two believers, but even more than that, God desires a marriage where both individuals are growing and strengthening their faith as they walk with God. Because as, as you get married, it doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're one flesh now, but you still both have individual walks with Christ. And the beauty is Sarah is not an afterthought to God. God says, if we're going to do something great in this couple, I got to bring both of them along i got to have both of them strengthened, that Sarah can't rely on Abraham's faith and Abraham can't rely on Sarah's faith. i got to have both of them together. So God begins to work in Sarah's heart. Look at what he does. It says in verse 9, Then they said to him, 
where is Sarah, your wife? He said, there in the tent. So as was customary, they're separated. The men are in one area. Uh, Sarah, the ladies in another. So where's your wife? He says, she's there in the tent. And then in verse 10, this is when I think it dawns on Abraham. He's heard this before. He's heard this voice. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So he reaffirms the promise that he's already made to Abraham. And, I, and, and guess what? The Lord knows Sarah's listening. He knows she's eavesdropping on the conversation. I don't even think he's really saying this for Abraham. He's saying it knowing that Sarah's listening in. And it says, and Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. In verse 11, I love this. The, the, uh, Moses, who's writing this, gives us a little more commentary. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. This is the word of God telling you that reproductively speaking, they are dead, dead. All right? There's no hope. This two couple, humanly speaking, it is impossible for them at this point to have children. And in light of that, because scripture, I almost feel like Moses is trying to excuse Sarah a little bit here. Just so you know, they're way beyond. It ain't possible. So what does Sarah do in verse 12? Sarah laughed to herself. Saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also? Sarah looks at old hundred-year-old Abraham. And she thinks about her age. And the possibility of having children at this point is no longer disappointing or sad or discouraging. It's funny. That's how impossible it is. She laughs. And what's interesting is who hears her laugh? Because it says very clearly in verse 12, she laughed to who? She laughed to herself. Meaning this was an internal laughter. This was not, not audible. It, it was laughing in her heart. But who hears? Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? I don't even think she said this out loud. I think she was saying this in her heart. She's laughing to herself and speaking to herself as probably we would have done. And God looks at Abraham and says, why is Sarah out there laughing? And what is God revealing to both Abraham and Sarah? Because Abraham needs to hear this too. God is revealing to Abraham and Sarah that there's no secrets with me. That you may put on a mask and a facade of belief and trust, but you can't hide anything from me. And God sees what no one else can see. And God hears what no one else can hear. And he knows what no one else can know. And what he knows is deeply embedded into Sarah's heart is still a lack of belief in the word of God. And she laughs. And what does the Lord say? Verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? You know that word difficult, it's the Hebrew word pele. It's the same word in, in Isaiah chapter 9 when it says of the Messiah that he shall be called wonderful counselor. It's the same word in, in Psalm 139 when David recounts that uh, you, you've searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways before a word is even on my tongue. God, you know everything about me. And then he says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
you could actually say here, the Lord is saying, is anything too wonderful for me? Sarah, this idea, I know for you, the thought of having children at this point, it's too superlative, it's too high, it's too supernatural, but it's not too high for me. It's not too wonderful for me. And, and Sarah, she, uh, he reaffirms it at the point in time, I'll, I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. In verse 15, Sarah denied, she barged in. At this point, she's not even still in the room. I just picture her barging in going, I didn't laugh. And God says, yeah, you did. Powerful picture here for all of us as well. See, God wants to do something supernatural in Abraham and Sarah's life. He wants to birth out of them a nation that can only be explained by the supernatural power of God. He wants to give a child to a hundred-year-old couple. But in order for him to be able to demonstrate his power, he's got to bring this couple, this ordinary couple. And don't you love this about God's word? These are the heroes of our faith, and it presents them to us as not some supernaturally gifted people. (laughs) They're just like us, aren't they? Just ordinary, average people. But in order to demonstrate his extraordinary power in them, he's got to get them to a place where they truly believe that he is able to do what he's promised. And I believe that this is so practical for us because oftentimes we we have an incredible knowledge of God's word. I was reminded of of a quote this week from George Barna that was actually, it's years, years old, but George Barna said years ago, I think about a decade ago, he said, never before have we had so much knowledge of God's word in our life and yet, Never before in the history of Christianity has God's word made such a little difference in our lives. Let that sink in for a moment. Never before have we had such a knowledge of God's word, and yet never before has the knowledge of God's word made so little a difference in our lives. And the question we got to ask is, why is it not making a difference in our, eye, in our lives? Can I submit to you today? It's because far too often internally where nobody else can see, we're laughing at God's word. Because we don't truly believe or think that he can actually do what he said he has promised and is able to perform. What you see throughout scripture is God is always calling his people up to a higher level. God never called us to live ordinary lives. He's not calling Abraham and Sarah to an ordinary life. He wants to do something supernatural in them. He wants to do something that's too wonderful for them, but not too wonderful for him. But in order for them to see his power displayed, they're going to have to act in belief and obedience. Because, you know, we... It's a family service. We don't want to get too graphic here, but what do Abraham and Sarah, if they really want to have a child, if they really believe that God is able to bring forth a child, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to go in a tent at some point, you know? And it is laughable, isn't it? But at some point, they got to step out in faith. And the true test of whether or not we believe God's word is what? 
we got to be willing to act on it. To take God enough and believe enough that our beliefs leave our head and enter our shoes and begin to affect the way we live. But you know what I believe? I believe, and I'm speaking to myself this week as I pondered this. Far too often we're laughing up our sleeve internally at what God has spoken. Scripture says the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone on whose behalf he can show himself strong. And you know what he's looking for? He's looking for somebody who will believe in him. Can I ask you this morning, do you really believe that God is sovereign? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that he is all-powerful? Do you really believe that nothing is impossible with him? Do you really believe that Jesus is God? Do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you really believe that there's a real hell and a real heaven and a person that can only go to heaven on the basis of faith in Christ? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God has the ability to take a little sinner like you, an ordinary sinner like you, and transform you and fill you with his spirit to the point that you are able to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and God can work within you to change another individual's life on the basis of his word. Do you believe that? If we're going to see God's power demonstrated in our lives, our homes, our marriages, in our church, in our nation, it's time we stopped saying we believe and start acting like we believe. But this week, as I've been pondering this, can I just be real honest with you? I took a look at my life and said, far too much of my life can be explained by Chad. How much of your life today can only be explained by the supernatural power of God? We're living ordinary lives, and we're called to live extraordinary lives. This world is tired of seeing what man can do. This world needs to see that which only God can do. But if his power is going to be displayed, we're going to have to be a people who truly believe in his word. So can I just tell you, just practical, where do we begin? And I don't have all the answers this morning. I'm working through this just like you. But can I tell you what I've been doing as I was reading Psalm 139? Because Psalm 139, I love that psalm and it used that reference to wonderful and that word, that Hebrew word was referenced there. And so I started going back through Psalm 139. And I think David learned the lesson of a life that was transformed by the gospel. Can we agree that David was not perfect, but he also he, he demonstrated the extraordinary power of God in his life. What God could do through a little shepherd boy. But you know one of the things I think was so key about David? If you get to the end of Psalm 139, do you know what it says? At the very end, he talks a lot about God knows everything about me. And he comes before God with honesty. And he ends that psalm by saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. 
And what I have been doing this week, and I would encourage you to do as well, is get on your knees before the Lord with his word open before you and say to God with an honest heart saying, God, I can't hide anything from you anyway. You know me better than I know me. God, show me those areas where I have deep-seated unbelief in your word and your power. Root out of my life and root out of my heart any area of unbelief so that your power, your extraordinary power might be demonstrated through my life for the glory of Christ and the growth of his kingdom. That to some extent my heart has been that prayer of the individual in the New Testament that said, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. Because, God, I'm tired of living an ordinary, average life. I want to live a life that displays your glory. Do you believe this morning? Do you really believe? Lord, help our unbelief. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly and authoritatively to us. And the real issue, Lord, is not the truth of your word. The real issue is, will we, in light of what you've spoken, will we stand and laugh and walk away in disbelief and disobedience? Or will we read your word, study it, and obey it? God, when it gives us directions about how we to operate within the marriage relationship, will we really believe? Will we believe it's true just because you said it? When it gives us directives about your mission, when you very clearly tell us to make disciples and to be your witnesses, we'll say we believe that. Ah, oh, we, we love the Great Commission. But do we really believe? Or do we walk away and laugh in disobedience? God, I pray that we would be a people who live a life of belief. Not just say it. Not just sing about it. But live it that your power might be displayed in our lives for your glory. God, help us to be the people you've called us to be for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.